Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by RW Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice, a welcome addition to anyone's sleep routine. Pace case, if you know me and you do, mm-hmm. you know that I'm yep. working all hours of the day, all hours of the night. Mm-hmm. So the sleep that I do get has to be very good sleep. And I'm always looking for ways to up my sleep routine. Sometimes I'll read a book to go to sleep. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll- I a bachelor? Uh, that book keeps me very awake. It's very engaging. That never puts me to sleep. Mm. I will mm. sometimes just put down my cell phone after a long day of looking at a screen. It's nice to get some time away from the screen. I also will incorporate- some R.W. Knutson Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice. It truly makes you go to sleep a little easier. It's the thing you need to help you drift off into the dreamland. Mm. As more and more people are looking to prioritize sleep, Organic Just Tart Cherry is having a moment thanks to Tart Cherry's potential sleep-related benefits and potential to aid in muscle recovery when you get those gains like clues. We're seeing this in the viral sleepy girl mocktail trend on social media. R.W. Knutson has a whole lineup of natural juices with zero added sugar, so you can feel good about adding them to your wellness routine. It's all about celebrating those daily wins. Organic Just Tart Cherry Juice is made from tart cherries, which may help you get a better night's sleep because they have natural melatonin. R.W. Knudsen crushes only 100% real ingredients so you can crush everything you do. Pick up a bottle at your local grocery store today. It's the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. This is the Game of Roses. Welcome to the Game of Roses. Welcome to Game of Roses. This is Bachelor Clues. Pace Case is not here with me today. She is enjoying some Thanksgiving merriment, and I am holding down the fort. So today, because the process of creating a Twibbon is so laborious that it requires two people, I cannot do it alone. So today, what I thought I was going to do is answer some questions. A lot of people submitted questions on Game of Roses pod over the past 24 hours. I have sitting before me 32 questions that were culled by the Dark Seeker. These are the questions perhaps that she wanted the answers to most. I don't know. I haven't read these, but I'm going to start reading through them now. 
And I just want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving, a happy Black Friday. If you're out there in the streets, in the Targets, in the Walmarts trying to get those Black Friday deals, good luck to you. If you're online trying to get those Black Friday deals, good luck to you there as well. We all have to feed into the American consumer culture. So let's get into this. I'm very curious. I literally don't know what any of these questions are. Hopefully there'll be some funny ones in here. But here we go. Question number one. Is how Katie handled the Blake breakup, John friendship, and now dating John, good strategy? We can only be talking about parasocial strategy here, first of all. Obviously, this is not strategy in-game because Katie is far out of the game now. But is it a good parasocial strategy? I mean, yeah, because if you go over to Bachelor Data, she actually did a very interesting uh, breakdown of Instagram gains during this period for Katie and I believe John Hersey. I'm not exactly sure. Hang on one second. I'm calling it up right now. But um, there definitely was a an increase in followers. As of the announcement, it looks like they are, Katie and John are plus 39,000 followers. So, yes, I would say that that is a good strategy, especially considering uh, since Katie came off of her season and hit a million, she has now dipped back under to, I believe, 975. So, yeah, it's a great strategy. And uh, I would recommend similar things to anyone. There's this idea within the nation that you have to somehow have reverence for the relationship after it ends if you are with a ring winner or that you have to somehow apply a uh, a harder kind of degree of effort to keep that relationship going. You simply don't. It's like any other breakup. They've been together for a few months. It didn't work out. They broke up and now she's moved on to someone else, and it looks like that's going very well. I would say this is a fantastic strategy. Everything she's doing actually this week with the 12 days of messy and all that, she's really blowing it out of the water. Let's move on. Question number two. Why should I buy your book if I don't want to win The Bachelor? Oh, a very good question. First of all, yes, the book is called How to Win The Bachelor, but it's not just How to Win The Bachelor. It is a really, I think, the best history of The Bachelor that's ever been committed to anything, the best study of it, including kind of the evolution of the game and when certain things came into which seasons and which players were the most important and producers and what the different eras are. So even just from a historical perspective, no one has ever done anything like this. And if you want to have an understanding of the game as it has changed throughout the years, our book is, I mean, just simply put, the best resource you can have for that. But beyond that, it's also, I think it's funny, we talk about the hyper binge in it all throughout it and kind of how it, it drug us down into the pit further and how it really radically altered our perception of what the game is and what the show is and what American pop culture is. But even if you, you don't intend on being a player in the game, obviously it's going to give you an amount of information about how the game is played so that when you're watching the show, you can now appreciate it at a greater depth. You can understand what is actually happening in the show. You won't be blinded by producer machinations. And you'll just have a better overall understanding of this thing, which if you're spending any time watching it, if you're listening to this podcast, that means that you you have a, a greater than normal interest in the show. And the book is going to take that even further. It's going to allow you to understand it really from the perspective that Pace Case and I do. 
So I think even if you're not, you know, angling to be a player in it, I think you would enjoy it. Question number three, since the real purpose of the game is followers, could we argue that Tyler C. or Hannah B. is the GOAT? I mean, is the Dark Seeker just putting these questions here to troll me now? You know my stance on the game. The game is what we see in the document. The game, to me, is The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. So I would not argue that Tyler C. or Hannah B. are the GOAT. They are the top two male and female Instagram players for sure. And they're doing very good parasocially. I don't know what kind of revenue they're turning out. I would actually argue that in terms of the parasocial game, that really is about money. And follower count does equate to money, but it also is about how much can you capitalize on it? How many big brand deals are you getting? You know, I would say Caitlin Bristow, although she's not quite the top uh, Instagram player, she is in the 2 million club. And I think she's probably making the most money off of her parasocial game. It seems like that. I have no actual information to this end, but it feels like that to me. So again, this question, Tyler C. or Hannah B. the GOAT? They're in the conversation for parasocial goats, but no, they're not even close to the fucking goat of the actual game. Hannah B, maybe. She, she's not, though. She was a good player, for sure, but not like, she's not a great, she's not a Mary Delgado, she's not a Courtney Robertson, she's not even a Hannah Sluss, in my opinion. And statistically, it's not even my opinion, it's true. Question number four. Who do you think would make the best next bachelor out of anyone in the whole world. <laughs> okay, I've talked a little bit about things of this nature, I think, in the show prior to this. I'm going to have to say it's Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I think if you get either one of those guys as the bachelor, it's the biggest ratings that we have ever seen. It's probably the most popular show in recent history, I would say. Not even just the biggest ratings for bachelor, but I think it would dominate across all uh, networks every Monday night and probably be the highest rated show again of the last few years if you start going back into the like the 90s when Friends was on when Seinfeld was on those shows were getting ratings that just are not possible to be had in today's day and age question number five what could be done to the current format to revitalize the show and could it be changed to help couples actually work out no, it couldn't be changed to help couples actually work out. The The game is the game. It's We have these rules. We have limo exits. We have 30, roughly 30 players coming in on night one, doing their limo exits, engaging in the first round and second round of the cocktail party, and then going into the regular season where you're competing in group dates, one-on-ones, eventually two-on-ones or three-on-ones potentially. Then you make it all the way to playoffs where you have your hometown strategy. Then you go to fantasy suites. Then you go to the finals. That is the game. So I don't think you can change that format and still have it be the same show. That's what the entirety of the nation watches, understands. We know the pieces of the game, just like all the players do at this point. And if you kind of alter that too much, there's no show. Like The Bachelor would would dissipate. It wouldn't be the same show. So in order to change it to help couples work out, I think you'd have to get rid of almost all of that. Because I don't think any of that shit is really actually conducive to building a relationship. I think 
the show that if you, if you wanted a show that was kind of bachelor esque, but it was really designed to help people fall in love and stay in love. I think that you're going after a show where it's giving people the opportunity to actually live together without producer manipulation. I think it would be something more like you pick 10 people to show up on night one and then the bachelor or bachelorette picks three of them who she's going to live with for a month apiece. And then at the end of that, she selects one person and maybe that would work. I'm not exactly sure, but it would be a better kind of attempt at it than what we've got in Bachelor now. And to the other half of this question, how to revitalize the format. <sighs> Shit, this is it's a tough question because, again, if you change it too much, it's not The Bachelor anymore. So what do you have to interject to make it good? I would go back, if I was the producers, I would go back to season 17, season 21, of course, season really 17 through 23. And there were even moments of brilliance in season 24. What you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, and this is something that they don't do in this season anymore. Let's actually go to season 24. Let me use this as an example. Let's all remember Champagne Gate. This was a brilliant piece of producing because it put into the game this scenario that is not part of the overall game structure. It's just a little thing the producers threw in. Kelsey Weir had the special bottle of champagne. The producers throw in an identical bottle of champagne that they then push Hannah Sluss toward. She is unsuspecting. She drinks it with Peter Weber. Kelsey Weir loses her mind. It's these little moments that producers can kind of manufacture out of nothing to see what the players are going to do. They're not trying to fuck the players over specifically. Kelsey Weir could have handled that any way she wanted. Hannah Sluss could have handled that any way she wanted. Good producing and what makes the show fun is when producers can drum up a situation, manufacture it, and allow us to watch the players play, see how they react. Instead of ramming five players into the middle of the season, it's like, yeah, we get to see how they react, but those five players coming in are at an immediate deficit. They are not on equal footing. And so that type of stuff to me actually makes the game weaker. And I think when they stick to little things where they're like, here's a situation, let's see what happens. That's when the game is at its best. When you have these little moments that kind of augment the general structure of the game, the the group dates and the one-on-ones and all the stuff that we know and love about the game, that's what I would do to revitalize it. I'd look for more kind of champagne gaty type moments and I'd get producers who understand how to make those moments because the ones we have now don't fucking understand anything about why this is a game that we love to watch. They truly don't. And I don't know if it's they're burnt out from having to do so many seasons back to back to back. That could be. Nonetheless, the job is the job. And if you're not doing it, you're not doing it. And they are not doing it. But they don't get the idea that like what we want to see is these players reacting to these various situations that are set up. So that is what I would do if I was them. Question number six. In 2000, the book Harvard Girl became a bestseller in China and is described as a manual on how to train children to get them into top colleges. The book was widely successful, but what parents did not foresee was that Harvard admissions and other Ivy Leaguers read the book. It would have been naive to believe they did not strategically adjust their admission criteria. How do you think your book will change how producers approach the game? This is a pretty interesting question. When we 
first started doing this podcast, one of my goals, and at that point it was just kind of like a pie in the sky, weird, like, wouldn't it be cool if, was that I wanted to have somebody in the game that I was able to have coached or spoken to and given them strategies so that it could be kind of like a piece of performance art. Over the years of us doing this podcast, it's now become something slightly different to me. Like I'm, I'm more interested now in coaching somebody to win the ring. Can I beat this game is really the question I'm asking myself now. But in terms of how the producers are going to be aware of these efforts, either through my, you know, trying to help people through the game specifically or how our, our book is going to affect it, I don't know that they're going to be able to change what they do with the game. This is kind of, you know, the same as that last question. If you change the game too much, it's no longer the fucking Bachelor. And then what do you have? You have some strange version of the show with a few bits and pieces we recognize. But if if the show, if the producers start taking a real hard line stance against people that are coming with strategies, like they did with Piper and Brendan on BIP7, and like they did with um, Ryan Fox with his folders... If they start doing that too much, it it just falls apart, in my opinion. If that becomes one of their primary goals every season, to shit on Instagram, to shit on strategy, you will lose believability. And then you really start going into a pro wrestling kind of phase where half the audience or most of the audience knows it's all fake. And if that is the case then you lose the viability of the lasting relationships, the believability of like these people are actually falling in love. And then I think that is detrimental to the show too. So do I think that they will change their approach? I think they probably will because the producers seem to be threatened by a lot of things. And I think they will view this as a threat. Maybe there would be a question that they asked them in initial interviews. Have you read this, this book, How to Win the Bachelor? I don't know. I don't even know how they could police it, though, even if they wanted to. How do you go about saying, you know, you've read this book, you're eliminated. All anyone would have to do, obviously, is, uh, is lie about it. And then once you're in the game, you're in the game. There's not much the producers can do except for seek retribution if you don't go along with all of their plans and machinations and stuff. But... I'm not, you know, t- the, the straight question is, how do you think the book will change how the producers approach the game? I don't think it will. And if it does, I think it's going to be recognizable in a very bad way. I, you know, if any producers are listening, I would say don't change your approach at all. You have to accept what you're making is a game. That's why we're watching it. I mean, it's a game, obviously, on its face. It's like Survivor. A bunch of people show up. You kick some off every week or it's like American Idol or any of those other things. America's Got Talent. It is a game, and I don't think that they can change their approach to it or it will all fall apart. I think our book is just going to raise the level of play dramatically. I think after season, the book comes out during the airing of season 26. I'm not sure how much time anyone would have before the shooting of 27, but I think Bachelor 28, which will be 2023, that will be the first season where I think every player will have read our book and you'll see drastic improvements in all gameplay. Question number seven, have you mentally prepared for the inevitability of gore being mentioned in the document? Of course I have. Oh, this was part of that question that I was trying to to answer earlier and I didn't. (laughs) 
part of why we wanted to do this in the beginning was that we wanted to try and affect the game from within the fourth audience, essentially, from within the fandom of it, like this thing that we watch and love. Is there a way that we could have some impact on it? And we've started to see some players using gore terminology like Tyler Cameron said Huju and even defined it in an E! News article. There have been multiple players, you know, saying they're in the pit at this point on their social media and all this kind of stuff. And so... You know, am I mentally prepared for Gore being mentioned in the document? Absolutely. Can't wait for the day. Is it ever going to happen? That I'm not so sure about because I do think that there are some producers who listen to our show and are aware of us and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not sure that they would ever put it in the document because, again, that's a step too far for them that means they're losing control. And I think above all, the producers like to think that they're in control of this entire thing. So am I prepared? Yeah. Do I think it'll happen? I think it's pretty unlikely that that we would see it, that we would see Game of Roses mentioned in the game. I think eventually Huju is definitely going to be in the document. I think you're going to see somebody talking about how they did a good one or a bad one or he he didn't do it right or whatever. I think you're going to see someone say the word Huju. That would be my guess for the first gore term that winds up in the actual document. Question number eight. If you ever met a producer... And they had to honestly answer one question of yours. What would it be? I mean, shit. I guess it would depend on the producer. Are we taught like, if I'm going back to season, you know, one through six, I would ask how many players Chris Harrison had sex with probably would be interesting to me because I know it was a bunch. That's the only information I have. I'd be curious to know who it was, how they got away with it. Mike Fleiss as well. Um, those early eras were really like the Wild West because all the producers were super young. They were doing massive amounts of drugs, drunk at all times, and at least from what I've heard, having sex with all the players pretty much continuously through those first four or five seasons. So that would be an interesting thing to have a conversation about. But I would also like to know, I mean, there's some specific things like Chase Rice in season 24, how did they know? That is a question that I would definitely want to know the answer to. How did they know that Chase Rice and Victoria Fuller had engaged in some kind of a prior relationship, even if it was only for a week or something, whatever it was? How did they know? Where did they get that information from? Because to this day, that remains a fucking mystery to me. I'd also like to ask about Phantom Night 1. Did that happen? There are titterings phantom night one for anybody who doesn't know was my theory that in season 20 uh or sorry in season 17 16 of bachelorette sorry um that the guys for that season actually all met and potentially even met claire that they did a night one at the mansion then covid lockdown went into effect they had to scuttle that put all the guys back in the hotels or or whatever they sent them home i guess because then six months later they started reshooting and of course that first night one in claire crawley season takes place at uh the resort in palm springs so i believe it's possible that they shot a full night one at the mansion and that footage exists somewhere i love to know if that is true or not there's just a million questions i mean jesus one question I would need like an eight-hour interview with a producer where I'm... I would, you know what I'd love to have? I'd love to be able to do an ITM with a producer and lock the door and be like, we're not leaving here until you tell me what I want to know. 
just like they do to the players. I would love to put a producer through a fucking ITM and get all of this information. Question number nine, other than Nick and Caitlin, who are your top five favorite players of all time? That's a great fucking question. I've never thought about this, but Courtney Robertson, definitely. She is the villain queen of season 16. If you have never watched that season, it's Ben Flagnick is the bachelor. If you've never watched that season, it's mandatory. You have to see season 16. It will blow your fucking mind. She is openly talking about gameplay strategy, being a villain basically to almost all the players, and she fucking wins the season. She wins the ring. And this is right before Paradise, right before Instagram. So I think right now she has 47,000 followers, I think. She also wrote one of the best Bachelor books in existence about her time in the game and stuff. And we're going to be talking uh, about some clips from an interview that she did in Digging Deeper on Monday. So get ready for that because she reveals so much fucking crazy shit. God damn. All kinds of stuff. Our Digging Deeper on Monday is uh, <laughs> maybe the best one we're going to have ever done because all the clips are about producer manipulation and really how deep they go to manufacture that show and how much of it is completely fake. And it's Spoiler alert, all completely fake. And we have the clips to prove it. But Courtney Robertson is definitely on that list. Mary Delgado, definitely on that list. She was a rookie in season four of The Bachelor. That was Bob Guinea way back in, I believe, 2003 or four. He was the first player to have come from another season. He came from Trista Rain's season one of Bachelorette. And then he became The Bachelor in season four. And that season had a bunch of experimental stuff. We had uh, precursors to group date roses in that season where they gave out on a group date of five players, they gave out four white roses. And if you didn't get a rose, you went home. That was also the season where Dark Lord Harrison started dressing in like these black on black suits. So he really became like this sinister character. And there's just so much weird shit that happened in that season. That was really the beginning of the experimental era. Mary Delgado played in that season, wound up getting third. And then she came back in season six, another experimental era season where they had two bachelors and she crashed the season with Heather Cranford, another player from a prior season. And she wound up winning the fucking ring that season and inventing the hooju. So Mary Delgado, definitely high, high on my list. Uh, Hannah Sluss, you gotta throw the Sluss in there. She has the greatest night one performance of all time. She was able to put together what I thought was one of the first and best professional performances of all time in season 24, where she was culling pieces of uh, Becca Kufrin's and Hannah Brown's um, rejection speeches at the end of her season as well. Just real, I loved everything that Hannah Sluss did. She was able to navigate that season so fucking beautifully. I would just, you know, Madison Pruitt too. She's in there. It's hard to deny that what she did in that game wasn't hyper-effective. And then if you look at her parasocial game, she's got the highest TikTok count of any player in history. I would put her up there. She's really dominated the, the kind of Christian player market, I would say. She's at the top of it. And, um, you know, I, I love me a villain every once in a while. She, this is a person that was just simply one of my favorite players to watch, Corinne Olympios. I'm not saying she was the best player necessarily, but this question asks, who are my favorite players of all time? Corinne Olympios. I mean, Jesus Christ. So fun to watch. 
the bouncy house, the sleeping through a rose ceremony, the dad with the olives. She took Nick Vial on a fucking pretty man shopping spree for her hometown. She just was a pleasure to watch on screen. I would put Demi Burnett in that category as well. The best colorful narrator maybe that's ever lived. Just a fantastic player. I mean, there's a bunch. I, I really like a lot of players. There's usually one or two every season that I'm just like, fuck, they're incredible. But those are some of my favorites. A little more than five, I suppose. And now let's move on to this next question. Can you give us a sneak peek into the reality show you're making? Any game mechanics? No, <laughs> we can't. Sorry. Suffice it to say, though, the show that we're making is a show for this era. It is a show that does not ignore social media. It is a show that does not ignore the fact that it's a game. It is also a show that... It, now, I'm like, no, we can't tell you anything, but here, let me tell you all these things. <laughs> we also would want to do a a version of this show that is like... The casting wouldn't be like you see on any other reality show. It would be much more diverse in all arenas from you know, what the players look like to ethnicities, to attitudes, all kinds of stuff. So we, I mean, hopefully we can sell this show and actually get it made. It's an uphill battle for sure, but we're doing our best and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with it. But I think that anybody who likes The Bachelor will love this fucking show. I believe it's basically the show that I would rather be watching than The Bachelor. That's kind of how it is in my head anyway, as Pace Case and I have kind of gone through the hyper binge and we've gone through everything we've gone through in service of game of roses and our fandom of the bachelor it just is inherently something that happened where we started to look at the game and we were like well here's why the bachelor kind of sucks in a certain way or here's how it could be better and through those conversations we kind of came to the conclusion like here's the best version of a dating reality show and that ultimately is what the the game is that we're pitching question number 11 which Bachelor season would you have wanted full behind-the-scenes access during filming? Uh, are you kidding? Season 21, Nick Vial. That season has so much in it. Rachel Lindsay, for example. It was the rise of Rachel Lindsay, who became the first Black Bachelorette in season 13 of Bachelorette. I would love to know. I would love to hear the conversations being had by the producers about if they cast her specifically to be the first black bachelorette and how they were kind of guiding her through that season. I would have loved to have heard the conversations they had with Nick Vial telling him to give her the first impression rose. I assume that that is what what happened. As we know now from various podcasts and different admissions from other players and stuff, the first impression rose very usually is something that the producers decide. As is the final 3 as is everything except the ring winner, really. Um, that season was also shot during the 2016 election. I would love to, and there's just no way that these players weren't having conversations about that. I would have loved to have seen that footage and heard what they thought about what was going on with Trump and, and everything that was happening during 2016. And I just think that that season... You know, I want to hear the conversations Nick Vial's having with the producers because at that point he had been through two seasons of Bachelorette, one season of BIP. He was intimately knowledgeable about the game, but he also fancied himself kind of above it, I think. I think he always felt, or at least at that point during his season, 
I got the impression that he felt he was part of the producer tier. Like, he gets it. I got to make good TV. He understands that. And so the conversations that he's having with producers, I think, are they're less manipulative from the producer's end than, say, like, what I assume their conversations would be like with, like, a Popeye or a Colton. I think Nick was in on it the whole time. And to hear those conversations would have been absolutely fascinating. Question number 12. Sweet Nums recently revealed she listens to Gore. Will there be a Sweet Nums slash Gore interview? Fingers crossed. You know, we on the show from time to time, I'll tell Lizzie something like, you know, eventually we're going to have Pilot Pete on our show. And I get eye rolls and I get laughed at. And then it happens. I've said that we were going to have Sweet Nums on this show at some point. I definitely remember telling her that. It has been a goal of mine, obviously, for a very long time. Sweet Nums. I didn't list her in my favorite players, but she's one of my favorite people that's ever appeared in the show, for sure. Just massively entertaining and really rewrote the the rules of what you can do as a family member. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that, nor do I think possibly we ever will again. She dominated that season, season 24, I mean. She was also very good in season 15 of Bachelorette during Pilot Pete's hometown. But the the thing that we are kind of constantly talking about why this current season of Bachelorette seems boring is because they don't have that dramatic moment that they're building to. Sweet Nums was that moment in season 24. Bring her home. Bring her home to us. That's what love stories are made out of. That moment was so fucking integral to the evolution of the game and specifically to that season i just i can't wait to ask her about what the experience was like as a parent going through this knowing that your kid is there sequestered for two months and then they fly you in to be like okay now you have to meet these two people knowing nothing about them i I just think it would be fascinating to interview her i hope we get to do it but uh time will tell question number 13 who is the woat? <laughs> Worst player of all time. I mean, shit. Any night one player is kind of in that category, you know? I But shit, I don't know. There have been some people who have made some big errors, obviously. Um, you know, in recent memory, Yosef Aberati, the guy who... Um, Claire kind of like shouted down on her. I believe it was her first or second episode of season 16. Men like that, that kind of thing, you know, that dude was just like top to bottom, bad strategy. Like from the moment he walked into the, um, the resort, I remember he takes his mask off and throws it on the bed. like, finally get to take this thing off. And you're immediately like, Oh fuck, here we go. But then, you know, you also look at, uh, fuck there's just been so many bad players who is the worst player of all time that is very very hard to say and i don't remember some of their names because they were night one players but there have been people that have gotten drunk on night one and been dismissed as a result of it that seems to me to be like one of the worst errors you can make because it's so easily avoidable all you have to do is just not get drunk and you'll not get kicked off because As we know, night one, the bachelor or bachelorette picks their ring winner or their top two, and then everybody else is just how the producers arrange you. So if you're drunk and going crazy and the the bachelor's like, well, that or the bachelorette is like, well, that's a person I can get rid of easily and and 
no one will be pissed at me in the fourth audience. So I don't know. I don't know who the worst player of all time is. That would take some research, I think, but I'm sure there is one. Question 14. How did you learn to astral project? <laughs> because it's working. You have now entered mine and my sister's dreams. Oh, fuck. To whoever wrote this question, you have my sincere apologies. I never meant to uh, come into your dreams. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I'm actually astral projecting either, by the way. But the thing that I do is it's called the gateway experience. You can Google this. A couple of years ago, somebody sent in a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act, which any U.S. citizen can do. You, I, I don't know what the website is. It's something.gov. Just Google this too if you're interested. But you can submit a request to get government documents about literally anything. And sometimes the request will yield documents. Sometimes it won't. But anyone can ask for anything. So a few years ago, and there's a Vice article written about this, somebody did a FOIA request to get these documents that described a thing called the Gateway Project. This was a CIA project where they brought in this guy named Dr. I forget his first name, Dr. Something Monroe, who essentially invented this weird technology, this audio technology, where you put on headphones and it plays weird tones in your ears. And then it's kind of also a guided meditation. This this guy's like, if you can hear me in your right ear, that means you have the headphones on correctly. So you have to put these over-ear headphones on. You're listening to these weird sounds. You're listening to this guy guide you through, through this thing. And there's like 30-some of these meditations that go in order. Uh, that kind of teach you how to get your mind in this one specific state that he calls the 10 state. And I know this all sounds fucking crazy. I believed it was crazy as well, but I was like, fuck it, I'm going to give it a shot. And I started doing it. And at the very least, it relaxed me. I could do this and then like fall asleep pretty easily that night. So I was just kind of doing it as a sleep aid. But then eventually I started seeing shit like pictures of license plates and people and buildings and shit that I'd never... Uh, seen or known in my life, at least to my knowledge. But part of me is also like, well, whatever, dude, it's probably just some fucking memory of something you saw and didn't remember. And your brain's just like shooting it at you now. And that's totally possible as well. So I'm not prepared to say that I'm astral projecting in reality. Uh, if I'm winding up in your dreams, again, you have my apologies. I hope they're fun dreams. I hope we get to talk about Bachelor. But um, I, that's what I've been doing. These things called the gateway experiment or experience. And again, I don't know if I'm actually astral projecting or if it's just some byproduct of the, the weird sounds that are in these recordings. Clues, mm -hmm. I've been on a mission. I'm trying to find Ooh. the perfect T-shirt. Yeah. Um, because it's spring. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to peacock. Luckily, the perfect T-shirt does exist. And you can find it at Skims. From cropped silhouettes to long sleeve layering tees, there's a style for everyone. You guys know how excited I was that Skims became one of our sponsors for this podcast. They have great basics and foundations. I got the boyfriend t-shirt in onyx. That's kind of a dark black color. And the cotton jersey long sleeve t-shirt in kyanite, which is kind of like a blue green. And they are both so comfortable. It's basically like you are wearing no nothing. Great for free spirit types. Well, for all the free spirits out there right now, you can shop the Skims t-shirt shop at skims.com. Now available in sizes XXS through 4X. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know 
we sent you. After you place your order, select podcasts in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows. Again, that's Skims. Support for today's episode comes from One Skin. If you have sensitive skin, you're going to want to hear about One Skin's scientifically proven topical supplements. This is face, eye, body, shield, and it can all be used with any of their other products, which are free from over 1,500 chemicals and preservatives that can make skin red, irritated, or itchy. Their products are safe for sensitive skin. It's just one of the reasons they've earned the Skin Safe seal of approval. You got to keep that skin glowing if you want to be keeping up the level of face play that I've got going on. And One Skin was founded by an all-woman team of scientists. Their products are backed by extensive lab and clinical data to validate their efficacy and safety on all skin types. Uh, Their topical supplements are the easiest way to keep your skin healthy and hydrated without the harsh ingredients or irritation found in other skincare products often. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code ROSES at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code ROSES. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support Gore and tell them that we sent you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is flying by. We're almost halfway through it. Now, I've done a lot of things that I'm proud of this year. A lot of them related to gore. We've had some great interviews. We're kicking it up a level to get on YouTube. We're really taking it to the next place. But there's still a lot that I would like to accomplish this year. And when life is moving fast, it's important to take a moment to celebrate your wins and to make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you take stock of your progress and then set achievable goals for the next six months so that you get all those things done that you want to get done. Lizzie talks about all the time how beneficial therapy has been for her. My friend Will on my other podcast talks about it all the time, and I agree. It is very good. It's a great tool to be able to talk things out in your life with somebody else who can set you on the right path to getting all those goals accomplished. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists literally at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Game of Roses today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Game of Roses. Question number 15 Why do you think the producers turn fan favorites into villains on BIP? Example, Blake Horseman, Brendan M., Dean, etc. I think it's a very simple reason. They are petty. I believe the producers need to feel in control of this entire thing at all times. And when players break out and they get a bunch of Instagram followers and they're making millions of dollars, much more money than any of these producers are on the show... Once that is happening, the producers feel like, well, fuck you. I'm in control of this. So we're going to turn you into a pile of shit and make everyone hate you. That ultimately is it. And specifically with Brendan and Piper, I think it's that idea of we control this even more than 
you're making a lot of money because Brennan and Piper weren't. They had Brennan had 300 and some thousand Instagram followers. He's making a little bit of money and guys don't ever make as much money as the women do. But and Piper, I think, had a hundred something, maybe 80 something. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember exactly the numbers, but they weren't huge influencers. I think that was more about, oh, you think you can come into our game with a fucking game plan? Fuck you. That was it. It had nothing to do with them talking about Instagram. All the players do that. They just selected the footage that they were going to use. I think it was when the producers found out like, oh, they knew each other before and maybe they schemed this. Well, that can't stand. We have to destroy them. I truly believe that it's just the producers being petty. That's all. I think that's literally it. Because it's no skin off their back. You know, if people are making money off of this shit, it's just... I think there's a strange relationship between the producers. I think this and the players, I think it has to be this way that the producers are jealous of the players. The producers wish they could be players, but that is a professional sport. It's like only certain people can be pro football players and pro basketball players and whatever. The same holds true for bachelor or really any reality TV. The good people at that game have a certain thing. And if you don't have it, you can't, play that game (laughs) like I don't not at a high level anyway you know and the producers I think because they create the game they manage the game they feel that they should be at that same level of fame or notoriety or whatever and they get pissed at these players I think their their base level with any incoming player is I don't like you but I have to pretend to be your friend I think that's how all their relationships are and some true friendships might develop out of it but I think in the beginning when these producers are seeing a crop of 30 new people at this point, every three fucking months, it's not even twice a year now, they can't form highly personal relationships with all of them. So they have to view them as commodities. And they're like, you're getting to do this thing. You might wind up being famous. So I'm going to fuck you over. Question 16. Hey, clues. Are you still answering your own Instagram or do you have a person for that? It's all me, baby. I have answered my Instagram DMs since day one and continue to do so. Uh, I'm a little lax on it, though, now. I don't get to all of them. I I try to. I try to do my best, but, you know, we're busy with the show and all that kind of stuff. But it is all me still. Question 17. If you could watch an episode of The Bachelor with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? (laughs) Holy fuck. Well, probably Christopher Hitchens, just because he was one of my all-time favorite people, and I am sad that he is gone. Or maybe Carl Sagan, similarly. Uh, those are two people that like I, I really admire the way that they thought and the things they talked about and how they perceived humanity and the world. And, I mean, Hitchens was alive during The Bachelor. Sagan, I, I don't remember when Sagan died. Alexa? When did Carl Sagan die? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Alexa. Okay, thank you. Um, so he died in the late 90s, and he missed out on The Bachelor. That was Sagan. Hitchens. Alexa, when did Christopher Hitchens die? Okay. So, okay. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you. 
Um, so Hitchens was well into it. He died in 2011. So he might have even seen some episodes of The Bachelor. But I would love to watch with them. I would also love to watch with any bachelorette or bachelor. I think that would be fucking fascinating. But I think Carl Sagan would have some very interesting opinions on what it means culturally and where we're going as a society and all that kind of stuff. Plus, I would just like to talk to Carl Sagan or Christopher Hitchens in person. That would be like a dream come true. Question number 18. What's your all-time favorite limo exit? That is pretty hard. I like some of the funny ones. I liked Ed Wastebrock coming in in that big bubble. But I also like some historic ones. Lindsay Cox, first grand entry, first grandy. She rode in on a horse. That was season 16. Um, damn, that is a good fucking question. I'm not sure. My favorite limo exit. It's hard to fucking top, in my opinion. It's hard to top JoJo Fletcher's uh, limo exit with coming in in the unicorn head. It was so strange... It was one. It was the first, I, to my knowledge, the first head-only taught we'd ever seen at that point. And then she takes it off, and she goes on to become who she who she's become now: two million club member, bachelorette, all that shit. But it was such a striking image when she comes out of that limo. She's standing there, this fucking rubber unicorn head, arms outstretched, posing for this picture that became a fucking meme a million times over. That limo exit to me, I don't know what it is about it. The way it was shot, what she did with her body positioning in that head, that unicorn head, it was just, it was so perfectly done. And again, it's a a head taut, which is a weird fucking thing. And she ran the risk of being uh, marginalized as a fool almost immediately, but that didn't happen. So it worked for her. That one to me is like, it's definitely up there. I know there are some other ones like Kira Norman came in and <laughs> zipped up in a fucking piece of luggage that uh, Popeye had to unzip. Jesus Christ. There have been some crazy limo exes for sure, but I think my favorite is probably that JoJo Fletcher one with the unicorn head. It was, it was just beautiful. It was like a work of art. Question number 19. If you were a Bachelor producer, what would you want to do and how would you treat the players? I mean, what? this is kind of a vague question. If I was a Bachelor producer, okay, so what tier of producer am I? Am I a casting producer who primarily does their work before the season and then they don't do anything in the show? Am I a field producer, which is a handler, where you're kind of assigned in small teams of other producers to various players and you're the one who's kind of like taking them around and uh, making sure they're going to places on time and that they have what they need? Am I more of an executive producer tier? These are the people who are doing the ITMs and actually asking you the questions and crafting the stories. Am I the showrunner, the person who's making all major decisions for what is happening in all of this? Um, You know, each one of those has a different array of things that you can do, but I'm going to assume here that this question just means if I was the showrunner, if I could do anything, basically, what would I want to do and how would I treat the players? I would treat the players, first of all, as players. I would not try to uh, coddle them. I would probably not even try to befriend them. I would probably try to keep it like all business, and I would try to make them understand like, okay, you're going on a group date. 
There's going to be 12 other players here. I would call them players, first of all, as well, to their faces. I would make them understand that this is a sport, and I would definitely tell them that what is at stake here is a massive influencer career. I would make that very apparent to them going in through the entire game, and I would let them fucking play. I would even tell them, look, we're going to be setting up scenarios to see what you can do, to see how you can handle these things. I'm not going to tell you what any of them are, but they're going to happen, and we want to see you play your best. We're not going to interfere in that play, and we're going to present the play as it happens. That probably is the thing that I would try to impart the strongest to them is that we're not going to try to manufacture shit, which again, you have to listen to what we're going to do on digging deeper on Monday. Some of these fucking clips talk about the lengths to which producers went to manufacture entire events that never fucking happened in some of the most pivotal moments of some of the biggest seasons. It's unreal. Some of the shit that was uh, spilled during this, these uh, podcasts that I listened to at any rate, that's what I would do. I would try to present it as a game and I would try to set it up in the classic game format. I would get rid of group date steals and all that shit. I would go back to classic era. The group dates are going to be three group dates in episode two with five players on each, everybody getting equal time. Then I would initiate the steal round in the next episode. I would build kind of an escalating uh, series of of different game mechanics. So instead of like night one, everybody is just completely fucking tired, exhausted. They're having to steal. They're having to kiss. They're having to do all this shit. I would set up a night one where it was basically like what they did in um, season seven, Charlie O'Connell. They had all of the women. First of all, they did a fucking home invasion on them, which was brutal. This whole season took place in New York. So all these women are in a hotel. The producers come in at like 5 a.m. or whatever kick in their fucking doors and they're like, you have five minutes to get ready and then you're going to meet the bachelor. And then they put Charlie O'Connell in this room and every one of the players has two minutes. They have a literal fucking countdown clock that you're watching and every player has two minutes to come in and make their first impression. And this is where we saw, I believe the first Kringle and the first Tot occurred. Same player gave, uh, put on a bikini under her like pajamas. And when she came in, she took it off. She was in the bikini. That was the Tot. And then she gave him her bikini top as a Kringle. At any rate, that I thought worked very well. Giving the players on night one equal amounts of time with The Bachelor to see what they can really do with that time. That's a more interesting game to me than watching the Turtles be scared about not talking to him. And then the producers come in and they're like, that's it, cocktail party's over. And they force turtling on people. It's just bullshit. Like what the producers are doing now is bad. I would try to make it more of the the classic game that I think like the bones of that structure are very good and what the producers do now to fuck that up I think is actually detrimental. I would try to course correct. Next question. With Chris S getting the centaur costume, how does a player refuse that without looking bad? I think very simply, I think you if you see that that's what you're supposed to wear, you just go, you look at it, and then you put it on the ground, and then you just start saying, 
I don't see a costume here with my name on it. What am I supposed to wear? You pretend like it doesn't exist so that you never have footage of you going, I'm not wearing this. You're just like, what costume am I wearing? And then when the producers have to come in and they're like, right here, you're wearing this. You just keep saying, I don't see my costume. Where is it? You literally pretend like the thing they want you to do doesn't fucking exist. Good luck to them. I mean, they'll, they'll obviously have retribution for you. They'll cut you to look whatever way they fucking want, but they won't have footage of you rejecting the costume and then you won't have to wear it. That's what I would have done anyway. Or, you know, you can try to trade. We've seen trades happen with costumes. Uh, Andy Dorfman and shit, I forget the other player's name, but in um, her season, of, her rookie season of Bachelor, they went on a, a group date where they had to take photos for, I believe it was a PETA style or like an animal rights charity with Juan Pablo. And it was Andy Dorfman and one other player they got there and they all got their costumes and Andy Dorfman and another player's costumes were zero. They were supposed to be naked and they wound up, I think Andy Dorfman actually did it, but the other player traded her in quotes costume with this other player named Lucy Aragon, whose uh, occupation was a free spirit. And she had already done multiple voluntary nudity plays at that point And she didn't care. So you can sometimes trade the outfit as well. Although I think Chris S. would have had a hard time getting rid of the centaur costume <laughs> for any of the other Viking shit. Question 21. What is your favorite part about the pit? Wow, that's a deep philosophical question. You know, my favorite part about it, I think, has been realizing, like finding out that it's not just me and Lizzie screaming into the void that there are other people screaming into the same void that there are a bunch of people in the pit with us who share our view of what this thing is as a game and who can see through it and aren't blinded by the show itself thinking that it's all real that is something that i when we first started this you know the first clue that i ever saw really the as i've said sometimes on the podcast it was during uh Shit, I think Sean Lowe's season. I now even forget what the season was. Maybe it was Chris Souls. Yeah, it was Chris Souls. They were supposed to be up in a hot air balloon, and you could see grass sticking up from the bottom right hand of the frame. So the hot air balloon was actually sitting on the ground, and they were shooting it from a low angle up into the basket so that it, it was meant to appear like they were actually flying in the sky, and it was a blatant lie by the producers. From that moment forward, I was like, who the fuck is watching this and thinking any of it is real? And that attitude is something I didn't know how many people shared that. And I think that as we've kind of created the pit, it really is, <laughs> I don't want to say heartwarming because that's a phrase I would never use, but it feels good to know that other people can see through the fucking lie too, but still be entertained by the show. This complex relationship we have with it where we know it's fake, we know it's problematic in a variety of ways, but we still enjoy it. We still like the game mechanics of it. I just really like knowing that there are other people who feel that same way. So I, I can feel a little less crazy because when you see all the shit that happens currently, at least in bachelor nation, like how toxic it can be for villains or for anybody who just gets even a remotely bad edit. It's like, none of that's real. I, I don't know how to convey that to people who think it is. And the pit, at least for me, my understanding of the pit 
as I swim in the dark waters of it, is that like we all understand the shit's not real, that we're watching a little bit of pro wrestling here. The real part of it is how players navigate it and what's going to wind up happening to their lives as a result. But that for me is my favorite part of the pit, is that I know when I'm saying this shit, other people are thinking it too, and that I'm not alone in my crazy relationship with this fucking show. Question number 22, other than the goats, Nick and Caitlin, who would be your dream interview on Gore? That is a very broad question. Obviously, Dark Lord Harrison would be an interesting interview. Mike Fleiss would be an interesting interview. But I mean, am I bound to someone from within Bachelor Nation? Could I interview anybody? I'd love to get Oprah on. I'd love to ask her what she thinks of it or any other even super fan of the show, I think would be pretty interesting. Um uh, like a celebrity super fan, you know, because I'm curious to know. I know what has happened to me and Lizzie as a result of the pit. Like we're computers now who only speak in this weird language. And all we think about is the show all day long. Celebrities, I don't think are like that. Even the big super fans, but maybe some are, I would love to find out if there is a celebrity super fan who is this deep into the pit. But, uh, I think any, any producer really who worked on that the first couple of seasons, I think would be interesting too. Anybody who was around back then who saw some of the darkest fucking shit, I think that would be fascinating. I'd love to interview anybody at ABC, any of the executives who are responsible for greenlighting it in the first place. I don't know. There's a bunch. There's a bunch. But probably, probably Dark Lord Harrison. I just feel that that is, there's so much there that we will never know. And that fucking crushes me because I know he has all the dirt about all of it. all these questions that I'm talking about, like interviewing somebody at ABC, interviewing one of the old producers, like he has all of that shit. And I think, you know, despite everything that's happened to him, he still will always be one of the most important figures in the history of the game. So just for historical purposes, I think he would be an interesting interview. Question number 23, any juicy tids you can share about the book? Uh, yeah, sure. We have in that book a bunch of experimental strategies throughout it that we have never talked about on the show. These are things that we wrote specifically for the book, one-on-one date experimental strategies, fantasy suite experimental strategies, all kinds of weird experimental strategies that are at face value, I think they're hilarious. But if you take a second, and you really think about what we're saying in these experimental strategies, I think you'll find that they would be interesting and they might work. I think they would work. I think they would all work. But the experimental strategies, I think, are a pretty juicy tid from within the book because they're uh, there's a lot of them. And like I said, they may seem funny. There's some that I'm thinking about specifically, which I will not say. And they are funny. They may seem bombastic and crazy like it would ruin the game. But... I think they're good. Um, and I like that element of our book. That's like one of my favorite things that we have in there is all these experimental strategies. Question 24. In your opinion, what's the most valuable move a player can make in the game? Oh, Jesus Christ. What These questions. What is the most valuable move a player can make in the game? Are we talking about the traditional move set? Are we talking about walls, PTCs, love levels, tears, steals, etc. Or are we talking about 
anything here. What could someone do at any given time? I don't know. But this is a strategy that I've been developing, I'll say, which I think is extremely valuable, and I have not really ever seen it in the game. And it's it's what I'm calling the long arc. Essentially, when you come out of the limo, you have something with you or you say something in your limo exit that starts the beginning of a story that will pay off in fantasy suites, essentially, right before the finale or potentially even in the finale if you can swing that. But I think fantasy suites is a stronger payoff point. And I'm not going to give away any specifics or anything, but the idea of the long arc is that when you come out of the limo, you're telling not only the bachelor and the second audience and the producers and us that this thing, whatever your your component of the limo exit is, whether it's a Kringle or a story or whatever, you're essentially saying, here is a mystery. This thing that I'm presenting is a question. The answer to that question is not going to come until far down the road when we've developed some kind of a relationship so that now the first audience is curious about what the answer to this question may be or the the next step of the story you've presented the second audience is also going to be fucking curious about it what the hell was she talking about what was that thing the third audience loves this shit because now they can keep calling back to this thing that you've talked about and then of course the fourth audience it's giving us that moment that i've already said doesn't really exist in this season which is what are we building to And if you can anchor that on a single player, and I believe any player can anchor it to themselves, that player will become the focus of the entire season. And hopefully you go to fantasy suites where the answer to this question, the the final point of this story is presented. And then in best case scenario, you go out in third place, you get kicked off in fantasy suites, and that is where you are statistically the most likely to then get the crown. So that's, to me... That's a move that I haven't really seen someone do yet. Like I said, I'm trying to develop it. And um, that, I think, could potentially be the most valuable move a player could make, the long arc. Question 25. Players on Survivor say bartending is the best job to prep for the show. What would be the best job to prep for The Bachelor? This isn't a job, per se. There is a job that is the best prep, but it's... College sorority into pageantry. And if you can get some sports in there, sports are like a good kind of side thing to always have because you're going to need it on an athletic group activity or or whatever, just physical stamina. Like you, That's something I think most people don't understand about our beloved game is you got to be fucking like in athletic shape to stand a chance in this shit because it's so physically demanding. The sleep deprivation, the weird food, the sleeping fucking five people to a bunk bed and shit. You have to be like physically prepared. But the best preparation, I believe, for The Bachelor is be in a college sorority so that you and play high school group athletics. That I mean, I would if I was going to mold a, a player from like birth which is what happens in all professional sports now, all the big ones, you know, like my dad wanted me to be a pro baseball player. I played in my first actual league of baseball when I was five years old. So that is, uh, I think, ultimately, what I would do if I had the ability. I would put a player in group athletics at a very young age so that they get used to 
being in this group dynamic so that they have instilled within them a strong sense of competition, but they also now have teammates. So not only are you playing against other players, you're playing with players, which is also a crucial element that you need to know how to do uh, in our beloved game. And then once they get into college, I would start trying to get them, or maybe even in high school, you can do like cotillion and stuff if you're in the South, but even that isn't, it's not exactly the same as the bachelor. Once you get to college, I think like being in a sorority is extremely beneficial because it's not only that's more closely related to the bachelor. Your sorority uh, sisters are definitely your friends and they're your confidants and all that. But in many cases, there can be a competitive nature amongst you if you're trying to be, you know, hold certain positions within the sorority and all that kind of stuff. So it teaches you that like social competitive hierarchy. And then once you get into pageantry, pageantry is almost a direct one-to-one to the bachelor. It has many of the same game elements. You know, you have to do like clothing competitions, which the bachelor, you have to have a different outfit for every group date and every cocktail party and blah, blah, blah. And it also teaches you how to uh, be friends with your fellow players, but also how to compete directly against them. That is the track that I would recommend for anybody who is trying to like coach a player or to prep them for the bachelor, start at a young age with group athletics, move into social competitions like sororities, and then actually compete on a stage in, in some pageants if you have the opportunity. Question 26, what would you call Brandon's play style? <laughs> would you say puppy dog, himbo? <laughs> You know, <laughs> fucking himbo. Okay. I would probably call it just a straight four TRR because he's not like, I wouldn't call him puppy dog because puppy dog is like a little puppy dog, at least to me, infers a little bit of a shy style and he's definitely not a shy style player. He's, he's more enthusiastic than that. And he's more upfront about his feelings for Michelle and stuff. Shy style is, is more like bashful. He's definitely not that, but, um, I don't know what I would call it. it. It really, to me, just is a straight 4TRR. And there are some players who go very far on straight 4TR strategies. I think he may be doing that here. But he seems to, at least what he's conveying, is that he genuinely likes her a lot, or even love level threes her. And it comes across as sincere. I think he might literally just be a 4TRR style player. Question 27. Is there anyone you've trained that we have already seen in the document? These questions, I think I've said this on the show before. I will never reveal anyone that I have trained or am training. That will always be the decision of the player. If they ever want to say anything about it, if they ever want to come on our show and talk about it, that's all fine. Like that can happen if the player wants to do it. That's the agreement that I always make because my goal in helping players is not to like, out them or tell the story of it i want to see how far i can get someone in the game and then even beyond that i want to see how far i can get someone in the parasocial game as well and to reveal any of that would of course end all of that (laughs) because you know you saw what the producers did to brendan piper imagine what they would do if they found out somebody has been being coached by game of roses (laughs) they'd be destroyed they'd be absolutely destroyed so i will never reveal who any of these people are 
if they want to reveal it, that's totally fine. And like I said, if they want to have a conversation about that at some point on a podcast or something, happy to facilitate. Question number 28, fuck, Mary kill, Nick Vial, Clayton, Dark Lord Palmer, you have to pick, don't chicken out. Okay. This is a very hard question. And it's the Dark Lord Palmer that throws me for a loop in it. I have reasoning for the others and and what answers I would give. But Dark Lord Palmer really throws a wrench in it. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. God damn it. This is a very hard question. So far, this is the hardest question. Oh, fuck. What do I do? What do I do here? Okay. God damn it. I've never had to think this hard about anything in my life. Um, okay. Nick Vial, Clayton, Dark Lord Palmer. Jesus Christ. You know, I want to say marry Nick Vial for obvious reasons. Greatest player of all time. Has a nice house. Has a successful podcast. I want to say that. But then I also think, what if I married the Dark Lord Palmer? He's probably going to be the host of this show for the next fucking 50 years. I could be his Lauren Zima. So there's some interest in that to me as well. Clayton never enters the marriage picture to me. So I either have to fuck or kill Clayton. I'm, I'm at least certain of that. So let me logic this out a little further. Fucking Clayton seems... If I'm not fucking Clayton, then I'm fucking Nick Vial or Dark Lord Palmer. I don't know which... Those both seem kind of bad to me. All right, I'm fucking Clayton. I've made my decision. I'm fucking Clayton because I believe... That would give me more information at the very least about who this man is, why he was selected as Bachelor. I would at least get some satisfaction out of potentially knowing that or having more information about it. I'm going to marry Dark Lord Palmer for the 50 years of hosting. I would then get to be the Lauren Zima of this next era of The Bachelor, which means I have to kill Nick Vial, unfortunately. But I will always remember him as the goat and... Take that to the bank, Nick Vial. Even though I have to kill you, you will always be my goat. Question number 29. Where would you encourage players to move? What team should they join? Well, (laughs) if I was a player, I would move directly to Los Angeles, California, and I would join the Icons. I believe in the next two to three years, I mean, the LA Icons already have the biggest Instagram cumulative number of all the teams. And I think in the next couple of years, that's only going to skyrocket. I think Bachelor Season 26 is going to have a gigantic LA Icon contingent that might revitalize it. Obviously, you've got all kinds of opportunities for uh, interactions with giant players out here in LA. And there's just constantly media being made out here. Not that there's not in other cities too, but I would definitely move to Los Angeles. Also, New York's great if you like the smell of piss and shit constantly around every street corner and you love sub-zero temperatures and you love hotter than 110 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures in the summer. LA's just like, it's the place to be. San Diego's probably a little more chill if you want to go down and be part of the crew. But I would pick LA. 
That would be my advice. Question 30. Will there ever be another player to do what Courtney Robertson accomplished? We talked about her up top. Courtney Robertson, of course, is the villain queen of season 16. Yeah, I think there's going to be. I I truly believe, and this may be, you know, to, to another question earlier there, this may be the legacy of How to Win the Bachelor, the book, is that you might start to see Courtney Robertson's in every fucking season. Someone who is very studied, somebody who understands the social dynamic, and somebody who is straight playing a game openly at its fucking face. And she's playing it so well that it works on the first, second, third, and fourth audiences. Courtney Robertson didn't really have a good second audience game, but her first audience game was fucking unreal. He even knew other players were telling him she's manipulating you. And he like didn't give a fuck. He still gave her the fucking ring. So will that happen? I think without a doubt. It's a matter of how the producers will react to it. Because I do think the producers at this point are like, they're just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They don't understand how to make a season anymore. And I think they're operating on fear because Matt James uh, season ended in disaster. They're very afraid of something like that happening again. And so they're like operating with kid gloves. And I think if they see a player come in who in their ITMs is talking about gameplay and shit, I think they may not react well to that, but there'll be a player rest assured there'll be somebody who comes into the game and is playing it at a high level who just manipulates the shit out of the first audience and wins the ring as a villain. I believe it will happen. Question 31. Thoughts on a split or share prize money ending on Bachelor in Paradise to spice things up? Never going to happen. How could you have somebody like GSJ marching down the beach with his gang and say, you got to get out of here. You're not here for the right reasons. Me, I'm here to split the fucking hundred thousand dollars with whoever I wind up with. Absolutely never, ever going to happen. If they do that, it becomes a different show. It's, it's Fuckboy Island or it's any of these other shows, Love Island that offer money prizes to people who make it to the end. I just, I can never see that happening. They tried to do it. That was what Bachelor Pad was. Bachelor Pad ended in ruin, and from those ashes came Bachelor in Paradise, where the primary difference is the money prize is removed. I don't think they would do it. And here we have one more question. Question number 32. Will you be writing How to Win the Bachelor after your hyper binge of The Bachelorette? Time will tell. Uh, it has to do with the success of How to Win the Bachelor. If we don't sell enough copies, there ain't ever going to be a How to Win the Bachelorette or How to Win BIP. If we do, then that is a conversation we have to have with our publisher and everything. But um, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully everyone will enjoy the book. I think they will. And hopefully it'll, it'll make a big enough splash that we get those numbers up high enough that our publisher would want us to do it again. But time will tell. And that rounds it out. Those were the 32 questions that Dark Seeker presented me with from all the questions that were asked. I can't thank everyone enough for not only submitting these questions, but for being part of the pit for as long as you have. We've been doing the show for about two years now, and I still think we're getting better. I still think our analysis of the game is is uh, getting sharper, but you know, it, it, this is Thanksgiving. I'm recording this on Thanksgiving. Tomorrow it will be Black Friday, of course. But I just want to give thanks to the pit, everybody who's in it, everybody who's been here from the beginning or people who are just joining. It's uh, like I said in one of these questions, 
it always feels good to know that other people are out there who view this fucking piece of media, which is, in my estimation, the most important piece of media being made in America currently still. I, I truly think it is a reflection of our times and our culture in a way that nothing else is. And I just want to thank everybody who is on this ride with us and who allows us to talk about what we see in the show and who talks back with us and has conversations with us. So thank you, everybody. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and I hope your Black Friday is good. And I hope you go into the weekend feeling good about everything. And we'll have a uh, Digging Deeper out for you Monday, which again, I think it's going to be the best Digging Deeper we've ever done because the clips we have are from a bunch of different podcasts that have players just the shit they're revealing is absolutely insane. So I'm very happy to be presenting that on Monday. And then of course on Wednesday, we'll be right back to giving you the game breakdown of Michelle Young's hometowns. The first round of playoffs begin. So once again, thanks to everybody and we will see you next week. Please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then please rate this podcast. Please review this podcast. Please get a friend to listen to us and then Now you've heard me talk about Quince on this program before. I love Quince. I am right now, head to toe, dressed in Quince. I got their shirts, I got their pants, I got everything from Quince. Quince is my spot for quiet luxury without paying those luxury prices. Quince offers a range of must-have items like 100% European linen, under $50, luxurious mulberry silk skirts, and of course, Italian leather bags and 14 karat gold jewelry from, get this, $30. All their prices are 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And because Quince creates timeless classic styles that won't go out of fashion, you're going to have them in that closet forever, unless you wear them out, which I may because I literally wear them every day. <laughs> I know you're wondering, how do they do it? Well, Quince partners directly with top factories to cut out the cost of the middleman, passing the savings right on to you and to me. What's even better, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium eco-friendly fabrics and finishes so you can feel good about getting high-quality items that are going to last you longer. Upgrade your closet this summer with Quince. Right now, go to quince.com slash roses to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash roses for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash roses. We're coming out of spring and we're headed into summer. It's a great time of year. It's a time for renewal. For me, that means reconnecting with friends and family I haven't seen for a while. And when I do, I want to make sure I have plenty of wine on hand to celebrate with. That's why First Leaf is a great option. As America's most personalized wine company, First Leaf takes the worry and guesswork out of buying quality wines, especially if you're somebody like me 
who knows maybe a little bit about these things, but not enough, not enough to really make a great decision. They make the decision for you. To get started, you just answer some specific questions about your wine likes and dislikes on First Leaf's website. And these can be things that are about the people you're buying it for as well, if you're doing it as a gift. It only takes about five minutes to create your own personalized wine profile. Then you get your very own wine concierge who's going to use those responses to curate a customized selection of delicious award-winning varieties from rosés to sparklings and everything in between. It's all based on your personal preferences on those questions you answered. These hand-selected wines are going to be delivered to your door within a few days with each bottle priced lower than what you'd pay at a wine store. You even get to choose when you get the wine. Plus, Every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. And if you have questions about your wines, like what to pair them with, for example, First Leaf's personal wine concierge team is there to offer that expert advice. So it takes all the guesswork out. I love reconnecting with friends and family over bottles of First Leaf wine, and I bet you'll feel that way too. So give First Leaf a try. Head over to tryfirstleaf.com slash roses to sign up and save 50% on your first six hand curated bottles plus free shipping. That's T-R-Y. F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash roses to save 50% on your first six bottles plus free shipping. Try firstleaf.com slash roses. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 